Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the SimKit Podcast. We are going to be talking about post-ROSC care. Caring for the patient who has suffered a cardiac arrest and is now back to life. I have a special guest with me here today, Dr. Mike Burla. Mike, say hello to the audience. Tell them a little bit about yourself. Hello, everyone. As Jason had mentioned, uh, my name is Mike Burla, um, and I'm helping with a, a project through Maine Health that is uh, head, led by uh, Dr. Theresa May, one of the critical care physicians at Maine Med, something called PCALC, which is a uh, uh, post-cardiac arrest learning community. Um, and with that, uh, we've been trying to improve the quality of care that we deliver to these patients who've unfortunately suffered a cardiac arrest. And we're doing that through you know, education, uh, protocolization, and things of that nature. Perfect. Perfect. So trying to kind of, you know, bring evidence-based medicine and standardization maybe to a point, you know, certainly standardization sometimes has a negative connotation to it, but getting us all sort of up to date in terms of current literature and guidelines about how to best care for these people that are now back from the dead. And we're really going to cover two areas of conversation today, temperature and hemodynamics. So Mike, if it's all right with you, I'd like to dive into temperature first. How's that sound? Sounds great to me. Perfect. So we in emergency medicine, we know that there's something protective in the body's physiology after being cold. You know, lower metabolic rate, fewer oxidative stresses. I don't really know. I'm not sure if anyone knows exactly the elements of that. But Anna Begenholm, who survived a core temperature of 13 degrees Celsius and lived to go on to be a radiologist, certainly knows that being cold is protective, neuroprotective, collectively protective, who knows. But being cold and then dying is rather different than dying, being revived, and then being cooled. So you definitely need to extrapolate at your own risk on that a little bit. We've had some data over the evolution of our training and into our practice now. The HACA trial, 2002, told us that you know mildly cooling was ideal, right? The targeted temperature management, or TTM, of 2013 said, you know, this is superficial interpretation, but 33 was not necessarily better than 36 degrees Celsius. So basically don't let them get a fever or hyperthermia is probably okay. And now we're kind of into TTM2, published in 2021, New England Journal. This study was for a large part negative for a survival benefit or improved neurologic survival for those that did go on to survive. Mike, with all of this sort of back and forth and changing and, and high quality data that is somewhat variable, where do we currently lie in the realm of temperature post cardiac arrest? Well, you know, there's a, a lot to unpack. Um, and uh, as with most studies, we got to kind of get a little granular and, and take things with a grain of salt, so to speak. Um, you know, to look back to 2002 uh, with these landmark studies, both Haka and uh, Bernard et al. Uh, looked at hypothermia in treating these post-ROCS patients um, with uh, Bernard's uh, patient population of 77 patients and, and the HACA trial of 275 patients. So not huge patient populations, um, but because of the profound findings, it really made its way into standard of care through the AHA guidelines, um, uh, which is what one of the things that uh, Nielsen et al., uh, who conducted TTM1 and TTM2, uh, really wanted to examine because you know, two relatively small trials 
kind of change in the way we practice um, is a little bit against the grain. Uh, so, so you know, TTM one, as you recommended, mentioned, came out and uh, and looked at thirty three degrees Celsius first thirty six and didn't find any changes, um, and really led to the idea of TTM two. Well. If there's no difference in outcomes between 33 degrees Celsius and, and 36 degrees Celsius, is there really a difference between uh, cooling the patient and just uh, not, you know, just preventing uh, fever, preventing hyperthermia? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they defined normothermia as uh, anything over anything uh, 37.8 degrees Celsius with a target of 30. 7.5 degrees Celsius. So anything over 37.8 degrees Celsius was uh, considered uh, hyperthermia. Okay. 37.5. Uh, 37.5. And this is for the TTM2 trial. Okay. You know, and, and when you look into this trial, a very robust, like as you mentioned, it's a very well done study, a very robust patient population with uh, the two arms being balanced, both the hypothermia arm and the normothermia arm. Mm -hmm. And the hypothermia arm had 930 uh, patients with the normothermia having 931. But when you really dissect the inclusion exclusion criteria, I think this is where you know we get to talking about how applicable this study really is to our patient populations. I mean, they uh, included adult patients, non-traumatic, uh, which makes sense, Presumed cardiac causes of cardiac arrest uh, and a stable ROSC, um, which they defined as stability of 20 minutes post-ROSC. Okay. And they excluded unwitnessed asystole, limitations to care, any intracranial bleeding, which, again, makes sense. But then also patients with COPD on long-term oxygen. And when you start to look at the exclusion criteria, you start to think about, well, you're, you're kind of excluding a lot of you know, patients at higher risk. So the COPD patient, patients who... Uh, had limitations to care. So what that means essentially is limitations to, you know, what had been done for them in the initial cardiac arrest setting. Mm. Um, and so when you look at the breakdown, the patient population they examined was relatively healthy. I mean, 82% of the hypothermic group uh, had bystander CPR, and the normothermic group had 78%. Okay. 19% uh, and 18% for diabetes. 37%, 32% for hypertension. A history of MI was 15 and 17%. And again, that's both the hypothermia and normothermia groups. Wow. Um, and, and the majority of the patients were male. It was 80% male. So, you know, at least from my perspective, you know, I, I've practiced both in Michigan and now in Maine. The majority of the cardiac arrest patients I see, you know, <laughs> most of them that. have hypertension. Yeah, yeah. not that. Most sixteen percent diabetes rate. I, I yeah, that's um that's curious. Where where was the uh, study performed? Uh, Scandinavia. Okay, interesting. So, that makes sense. So it's not an uh, yeah, it's not a uh, uh, American population. And and it, when we look at a lot of the literature for postcard arrest, there's there's plenty of European studies mm -hmm. that that have great data. It just from an actual applicability standpoint. For our post-cardiac arrest population, it's just tough to extrapolate their findings. And so I do think there should be some hesitancy when taking that at face value. I mean, it's, it's a great study, but I don't think, um, you know, we should all of a sudden be, you know, we should stop cooling these patients and just say, well, that should be okay if they're normal thermia. 
I think there is more research that needs to be done. And, um, you know, the current AHA guidelines reflect that it still recommends hypothermia, prognostication at 72 hours, all these all these good things that we've known to do, for, you know, as standard of care for the last 20 years. Yep. Um, and so, so that would be my first point with TTM2. You know, the second point is, you know, we've gotten to, as I mentioned, like a 20-year mark now, essentially, um, when the both the Hakka trial and uh, Bernard et al. came out. And in those 20 years, you know, a lot has been done to improve uh, the care of post-cardiac arrest patients. And so I think our standard of care has changed drastically as well. And I, I kind of compare it to uh, when uh, Manny Rivers uh, came up with early goal-directed therapy and uh, sepsis patients, you know, and it was very groundbreaking. He was able to demonstrate uh, up to a 30% mortality uh, benefit um, with early goal-directed therapy. And then all the subsequent uh, external validation trials of the rise and process really didn't show a difference in standard of care versus early goal-directed therapy. Well, those, those happened years after the fact. And mm-hmm. During that time, standard of care changed. People were focused more on acutely treating sepsis patients. And, you know, maybe they didn't need a a central venous pressure or an intensivist at bedside to improve outcomes, but they certainly were focused on the patient much more than pre-early goal-directed therapy. And I think something similar could be said for post-cardiac arrest patients now in those last 20 years, uh, how much has been done from focusing on the patient, not just from a temperature standpoint, but from an overall acuity of care standpoint. I like that analogy in comparison because to your point, yeah, we we got better at preventing death and sepsis and it, it seems initially like, oh, it's this bundle package that Rivers created that is of value. And as you peel away the layers of the onion, it's it's actually that we are paying attention, that we're caring, that we're at bedside, we're reevaluating. You know, like you said, CVP, okay, it's probably not what's leading to survivability or survival in these patients, but our increased attention to it. And now all of this extrapolation is done with caution, right? Because is hypothermia or prevention of hyperthermia a surrogate? Is it showing this person's post-ROSC? We are paying attention to them at their bedside, watching their hemodynamics and their all of their vital signs more closely, but we come in because we're interested in where they're at from a, a temperature standpoint, and that's changing the, the you know value or quality. It's hard to say. It's hard to. It's definitely hard to say. And it sounds like the ideal would be a an American-based study on you know a TTM three in the United States. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I mean, there are studies being done now to to, to look at American populations. Uh, but um, you know, at the at the end of the day, I think that's what it'll take um, to maybe have a, a real, more robust base of literature to suggest, you know, we don't necessarily need to cool these patients. But as it stands now, I mean, that's still the AHA guideline. And and I think the patient bene- uh, population that would benefit most are sicker patients um, who have cardiac arrest. Yep. And, and I was actually going to bring that up as a sort of a, a devil's advocate point of what about the um, prior MI diabetic hypertensive patient is you know different than these sort of healthy Scandinavians um, in that hypothermia or, you know, temperature management is going to act differently in those cases. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, um, it's tough to answer that question. I mean, certainly baseline comorbidities may may lead to chronic poor perfusion of organs in general, especially the brain, which would make it more susceptible to injury. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that, 
you know, these chronic COPDers um, who uh, were excluded, who are on OMO2. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons. It's tough mm-hmm. to say, but at the end of the day, there's still patients we see and, and we treat in the emergency department. And so, you know, we should be doing as much as we can for them. Right. Yeah, we need to have definitive studies of the people that we're seeing. Um, and, and there are exactly. healthy healthy arrest patients, you know, my realtor was one actually, um, had a, you know, generally healthy person, I think had a V-fib arrest, bystander CPR, got shocked by EMS and, you know, did our mortgage <laughs> or was uh, actually, you know, functioning relatively well, I think. Maybe I should review the contract. Um, but Not yeah, to do the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> those, um, those, those cases happen. Um, but to the point in the beginning, you know, if you look at the demographic of patients that are experiencing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they are not the majority, certainly in our country. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair statement. So, All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, hemodynamics. This, I have to say, is an area where I'm a little less well-versed. What are the current recommendations regarding heart rate, blood pressure, or even MAP in the post-ROSC patient? Yeah, so I, I think this is an area where... Again, uh, probably more work needs to be done, but there, there's a significant amount of literature out there that already suggests blood pressure is super important to manage in these post-ROS patients, uh, maybe more aggressively than we think about. Um, and it's just not something that you or I, I think, um, are exposed to uh, as emergency medicine physicians uh, in our training. At least I don't remember uh, learning too much about these things when I was in residency. Uh, so just, just to start, you know, the current AHA guidelines do put an emphasis on, uh, you know, avoiding hypotension uh, as well as preventing hypo and hyperaxia, you know, which is something we can certainly get into at some other point because I don't, I don't think we have enough time uh, during this current podcast. Mm. Um, now they give, they give pretty manageable and what I would say conservative, uh, targets. Um, so maintaining a systolic above 90, uh, millimeters per mer- of mercury and, uh, mean arterial pressure above 65, which is that typical number we think about with, you know, sepsis or, or shock in general, you know, mm-hmm. mean arterial pressure above 65, but there's, there's literature out there to suggest that, um, we really should be more aggressive and some of this even dates back into the 90s um, where there were studies done uh, that uh, suggest on, on dogs <laughs> where they uh, actually induced uh, V-fib and VTAC arrest, unfortunately, and then resuscitated them and gave uh, medication to elevate their blood pressure and noticed that the, the higher blood pressures were associated with better mortality outcomes. Now, uh, that was extrapolated into uh, human uh, studies, mostly retrospectively, that I looked at blood pressure associations with post-ROS care. Now, most of them uh, looked at uh, the evidence of avoiding hypotension, which is what the AHA guidelines recommends, mm-hmm. specifically in the first 24 to 24 hours and uh, even more uh, specifically in the first six hours. Okay. Uh, now, what was found was there's a few studies out there. So um, there was one study uh, done by Stoke et al. that uh, did look at MAP, uh, two hours post-cardiac arrest, uh, that demonstrated uh, a mean arterial pressure above 75 was associated with better neurologic outcomes, um, you know, which is higher than the typical 65 we think of. Now, 
That specific study, they did have at the hospital protocolization where if a map dropped below 70, they would give epi, Um, you know, which isn't, again, isn't typical standard of practice uh, in the United States. And so, but it still, it still was an important finding, you know, fast forward to the 2000s, 2010s, and, and even now, there's been multiple retrospective studies that have kind of reflected, you know, these type of findings. So, you know, some of the more recent studies have demonstrated kind of this this six-hour mark of um, preventing hypotension. There was a study done uh, at a single-center institution between 2009-2012 at uh, Cooper University, New Jersey, where they were able to assess uh, neurologic outcomes with the mean arterial pressure, and they found that uh, a mean arterial pressure of 70 uh, was more, you know, 70 and up, was more associated with uh, better neurologic outcomes than below. Mm. Um, retrospectively? That, retrospectively. Okay. The, the, all, these, all these other ones are, are, are retrospective. Yeah. And uh, the next one, uh, kind of in that same timeline, uh, the Finn resuscitation group, so a Finnish group, uh, looked at a cohort of 412 patients from 2010 to 2011, um, and again, have found good neurologic outcomes or better neurologic outcomes associated with a higher average MAP within the first six hours. Okay. And a lower a lower MAP in that first six hours was uh, associated with worse outcomes. Hmm. And so, you know, there, there's several uh, studies that I can provide the, the uh, links to um, kind of uh, going over the benefits of, of aggressive blood pressure management, specifically in the acute setting of post-ROS care, uh, that have been associated with better neurologic outcomes. There's currently a prospective study going on as well in the United States, um, and we'll see what that shows. But because of this literature, which, again, is not something when I was training really was emphasized on, and I mean, I, I graduated res- residency in 2017, so it's not that long ago. Right. You know, we're currently, at least with the the PCAL group that we have uh, through Maine Health, advocating to achieve, try and achieve a map of 80 uh, with our postcardiac arrest patients. I mean, and the, the theory, I think, makes sense. You're trying to adequately perfuse the brain as much as possible. And any dips, I mean, it's, it's well documented, any dips in pressure in that first uh, hyperacute setting, uh, just it just leads to poor neurologic outcomes. It can be devastating. Sure. Interesting. And so, yeah, so let's please, we're going to get those uh, references into the show notes for you all. But to summarize what you were just going over, Mike, they we have some animal model data that suggests that higher uh, maps or higher pressures are, you know, beneficial from a neurologic standpoint or neuroprotective, uh, you know, animal model based. We have some retrospective data correlating higher, probably cerebral perfusion pressures, but we're looking at maps realistically with improved neurologic outcomes. And we have the uh, AHA recommendations of a map greater than 65 and a systolic blood pressure over 90 targeting a, you know, that sort of magic time of six hours post ROSC, but ideally for the first 24 hours post ROSC. That is correct. And, you know, um, like most guidelines, they typically lag behind the most current literature. Now, I don't know if the updated AHA uh, guidelines are going to suggest anything more aggressive, but mm. uh, 
currently, yes. At 65. A, a map of 65 or greater is, is what's recommended. Yep. But certainly some researchers out there and some institutions recommending higher maps, as you mentioned, in 80 for this uh, particular uh, cohort that we're doing. Yes. Okay. And now the the obvious area of question is going to be, and unfortunately I think the end answer is going to be we're going to need prospective data, um, <laughs> is you know if you think people that have lower blood pressures do worse, well, is it because they're doing worse that they have low blood pressures and that it is the egg and not the chicken or that it is the sequelae of the problem rather than the culprit to the problem? Um, if someone has you know poor hemodynamics because their heart has sustained a or brain has sustained a significant hypoxic event during their arrest, they're going to be more difficult to maintain a, a high map and they're going to trend toward worse outcomes, of course. Yeah, I think I think you hit uh, the nail right on the head with that. I mean, that's that's that is something that's going to be hard to ter to determine in the in the future. And like you said, I mean, more more studies are going to need to be done. But it's it's just it's a hard population to study. And, and mm -hmm. even what you had mentioned that that's a hard thing to determine too, uh, whether or not they had already uh, had some horrible anoxic injury that is leading to these low maps and, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I mean that is very, I think that's very possible in retrospective data, right? Those are hard to parse out. But when you're randomizing people to a map of 60, 65 versus a map of 75, 80, then you might be able to remove or at least equilibrate the worse spectrum of a ROSC patient versus the high-end spectrum of a ROSC patient and see which of the two does better prospectively. Yes. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. And so, but that's important for us to know because, uh, yeah, the AHA recommendations, that's, as you mentioned, you know, that seemed to be an area that was more nebulous for me in training, and I did not have some of these specific targets in my mind. So we can at least state the AHA is recommending a map of 65, easy to remember, probably a little bit of a uh, transfer <laughs> over of information there, um, and a uh, systolic blood pressure of 90 during our magic hours six hours post-ROSC, map of 65, SPP of 90. Exactly. And, you know, and that, like you mentioned, th those are our hours. Um, you know, this is literature that I think most intensivists would be familiar with. But the reality is it's the emergency medicine physician that's caring for these patients during these um, very critical time in the patient's trajectory, care, for lack yeah. of better words, yeah. trajectory, prognostication, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, and now tell me a little bit if you have, you know, a, a personal sense or uh, data-based uh, driven uh, opinion on agents. So what's the best agent or combination of agents to achieve these uh, targets for patients? I have to say that I've probably been a little rudimentary in my approach and kept it simple, simple in that, you know, we use epinephrine in a CLS. We use epinephrine in the patient who's experienced a cardiac arrest. Now, paramedic two trial is going to certainly put a little bit of a wrinkle in the idea of the utility of epinephrine in managing an arrested patient. But I've sort of translated now, if this person gains ROSC, we've been using epinephrine in the creation of that ROSC for that patient, and they transition often onto epinephrine for their hemodynamic care. Is that the right approach? Is norepinephrine better? Is there a better agent or a combination together? So, Mike, what agent or agents should we be using for the hemodynamic parameters we just reviewed? Well, I think um, I think 
you know, you'll start to notice a theme. It's it's a little uh, up in the air mm-hmm. exactly what we should or shouldn't be using. Now, um, there is some literature uh, out there to suggest uh, norepi might be a better choice. But um, before we get there, just to touch on the paramedic two trial, um, you know, I, I do think there is some controversy with this uh, topic. Um, you know, uh, it makes sense, right? Epinephrine uh, is very similar to norepi. Um, but, you know, theoretically, you're maybe getting a little bit more squeeze out of the heart. There's a little bit more positive inotropia and epinephrine. And so it's like the thought is maybe we, we do that as a drip. Um, and like you said, we're already using it in resuscitation. Now, the paramedic 2 trial was able to take a, a pretty good look at uh, resuscitating out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients with epinephrine, which is, is something we uh, do on a daily basis. It's something you know our EMS providers do. Uh, and they had 8,014 patients randomized across five ambulance services in the UK um, where they had uh, epinephrine versus placebo resuscitation. And between the groups, you know, what we would expect, epinephrine did have uh, ROSC achieve more. It was 36% versus 11. However, they were associated with worse neurologic outcomes, which was 31% worse neurologic uh, outcomes compared to 11% with the placebo group, uh, which... You know, it kind of leads us in this kind of dilemma where, you know, epi from the beginning in resuscitation really isn't evidence-based. Again, it's, you know, we continue to touch on this. It's a hard po- patient population to study, um, but it makes sense in the in the fact that um, it's, it's, it's catecholamine, it has positive inotropy. We're trying to get the heart going to perfuse the organs, to you know, get the person uh, resuscitated and, and you know, uh, doing as best we can to keep them alive or, or get them back to life. But, you know, one thing that this study didn't really look at is, you know, these patients who ended up with, while the patient populations were randomized between placebo and uh, epinephrine and you're able to kind of control the comorbidities, the reality is the patients who may have been sicker in both groups may have actually survived to get to the hospital um, you know, as opposed to the patient who may have been sick and received the placebo and didn't. And, and those were associated with worse outcomes, but maybe they were just sick at baseline, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think I think the study shed some great light, you know, is Epi really um, helping helping us out in these instances? But the reality is we, I think there's still a lot of unknown out there is, well, our sickest patient populations, would they have survived to the hospital uh, without epi and maybe in general they have more worse neurologic outcomes but um, you know maybe some of those patients don't yes so, um, you know from that perspective i think that there's still some questions now from a rosk standpoint um, you know as we had mentioned earlier it's really important to prevent hypotension you know to continue drip because i've traditionally done that too let's just keep them on the epi let's keep it going there's some recent literature to suggest that norepi might be better. Just published this this year uh, in intensive care medicine. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, but uh, Bogion et al. Okay. Uh, was able to compare epi and norepi in a pretty uh, robust patient population, 766 patients across five hospitals. And uh, among these patients with post-ROS care, epinephrine was associated with uh, higher all causes of mortality mm-hmm. and cardiovascular causes specifically. There's other studies that have been done too, as specifically looking at cardiogenic shock, epinephrine versus norepinephrine. And epinephrine was associated with refractory hypotension, um, refractory shock. Interesting. It's just, think, again, things we don't think about when we're in the emergency department because 
we're, we're seeing the patient hopefully only for a couple hours. I mean, the way things have been, we've been holding on patients for longer. longer. Right. Um, but but the reality is, I mean, um, you know, these agents are being looked at closely in the ICU. And I think at the end of the day, as long as you're able to achieve uh, aggressive blood pressure management and preventing hypotension with whether it's norepi or, or epi, um, you're, you're doing the patient right. But literature is suggesting norepinephrine is probably a better agent on okay. uh, these post-ROSC patients. Um, and that, that's something that our intensivists uh, are, are currently recommending. So Is that? Yeah, I think um, a lot to unpack there. I, back on the paramedic too, I think my, my takeaway on that was we don't want a weekend of Bernie's people. We don't want, you know, bodies uh, that are alive with dead brains. And so if it's going to be effective, it seems like we want it, you know, the early dosing makes sense to me. Give it, give it in, you know, the college effort um, to not be particularly academic in the descriptor of that. But at, you know, 25 minutes hour or 25 minutes into the resuscitation, do we really need to be giving boluses of one milligrams of epinephrine? Probably not. 40 minutes, probably not. Um, we're bringing back dead bodies. But to uh, the post-ROS patient, yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, we are probably more facile with norepinephrine drips because of their utility in sepsis uh, in the ER. And certainly, it, so if you're saying that the data has a signal toward it being more beneficial, that makes sense to me as a start point. For those of us that are, you know, consider themselves resuscitationists, or at least if they are hocus um, friendly or capable, we can look at the heart and see, right? I'd imagine you can look and see our, our squeeze is very hyperdynamic, a heart that's beaten away. It's probably not one I'm going to want to put a lot of epinephrine to. Or if it's just kind of barely getting by with a pretty significantly decreased EF and you're having a hard time getting the map that you're desiring, then maybe a little more ionotropy is going to be valuable. But leaning toward norepinephrine, it sounds like, unless you can get additional data through POCUS or other means to see which agent is preferred. Yeah, and I think that makes complete sense, um, you know, especially as uh, board-certified emergency physicians. Most of us are trained in uh, uh, bedside ultrasound, as you'd mentioned. And, you know, if, if you're seeing a hyperdynamic heart, I mean, and the pressure's still low, you, you probably should be looking elsewhere as to why the pressure is low right. or what's going on. Because at the end of the day, you know, it really is about maintaining these uh, aggressive hemodynamics to do what you can uh, to serve the patient best. So, um, they have the greatest chance at a, a good neurologic outcome and being discharged from the hospital at some point mm -hmm. with some quality of life. Fantastic. I like that. That actually has a wrap up point. I'll, I'll do a quick summary and then um, we'll close out. Um, all right. So we started kind of talking about temperature a little bit. You know, we had the HACA trial, TTM1, TTM2. We've seen through the data over that time frame saying, okay, maybe really cold is good. Maybe just not having a fever is good. And then TTM2 has kind of been more of the, hmm, maybe we just don't, you know, we, we don't need to be doing true hypothermia as TTM2 showed. But Mike pointed out that there is a little bit of an apples and oranges comparing that patient population to the average American who experiences cardiac arrest. Probably not enough definitive data right now from Dr. Burgo's perspective and our, our group's uh, analysis of that data to fully abandon the idea of temperature control in these patients and something that you should be looking at with your ED group as well as your intensive care physicians to decide where you guys land on that final decision point. We then went on and talked a little bit about hemodynamics 
and the management of blood pressure after cardiac arrest. We dove a little bit into the Paramedic 2 trial and the idea of epinephrine to bring people back, but mostly we were focusing on what should be our maps and our goals when we bring someone back, truly back. And you mentioned that the American Heart Association recommendations right now are for 65, a map of 65 or higher, and an SBP target of greater than 90. But there is some data supporting higher targeting maps. And again, if you and your intensive care group are pursuing those, there's data to support your decision. As you mentioned, our group is targeting a map of 80. And we went over how to achieve this. And norepinephrine probably could be our lean in these patients. One, there's a signal in the data to support it. Two, our nurses and ourselves are pretty comfortable with dosing it. All in all, we need to think about what's best for that patient in front of us, right? Knowing their comorbidities, knowing their downtime, knowing what we're seeing in their recovery. These are difficult patients to care for. We do not want to bring them back to later be pronounced in the ICU. But we also want to give them the best chance at a proper neurologic survival as we can. And there's certainly more prospective data that's needed. But this is helpful to guide the care that we provide in the ER. How'd I do, Mike? I thought that was brilliant. thought it was a really good summary. Um, obviously, there's so much more we could talk about. <laughs> yep. There's plenty to talk about in these these patients. They are fascinating. They're fascinating because they're cognitively challenging. They're procedurally heavy. We have the potential to really influence the course of someone's life, a family's trajectory, both for the positive, but also, as we mentioned briefly, in the negative direction as well. So we, we want to be up to date on this stuff. We want to do the best we can for the patient in front of us with the current data we have. Well, Mike, thank you so much for chatting with us on this. Again, folks, we're going to put all the uh, references that we put together in the show notes for you to review. If you do have questions on the topic matter, we'll have points of contact for ourselves so that we can talk through things further. If you have contrary points, we would love to hear your perspective, your opinion, because this is an area that's growing, evolving quickly, and it's going to continue to do so. So hopefully this has informed your care some. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. In addition to this awesome foam content, SimKit offers procedural training kits that deliver right to your door. 30 minutes a month practicing these HALO procedures needed to take care of these critically ill patients. Check out the link at the bottom of the show notes for more.